Section 60 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 60. Chapter 49, Part 3 James, unable to resist so strong a combination as that of his people, his parliament, his son, and his favorite, had been compelled to embrace measures for which, from temper as well as judgment, he had ever entertained a most settled aversion. Though he dissembled his resentment, he began to estrangle himself from Buckingham, to whom he ascribed all those violent counsels and whom he considered as the author both of the prince's journey to spain and of the breach of the marriage treaty the arrival of bristol he impatiently longed for and it was by the assistance of that minister whose wisdom he respected and whose views he approved that he hoped in time to extricate himself from his present difficulties during the prince's abode in spain that able negotiator had ever opposed though unsuccessfully to the impetuous measures suggested by buckingham his own wise and well-tempered counsels after charles's departure he still upon the first appearance of a change of resolution interposed his advice and strenuously insisted on the sincerity of the spaniards in the conduct of the treaty as well as the advantages which england much reap from the completion of it enraged to find that his successful labors should be rendered abortive by the levities and caprices of an insolent minion he would understand no hints and nothing but express orders from his master could engage him to make that demand which he was sensible must put a final period to the treaty he was not, therefore, surprised to hear that Buckingham had declared himself his open enemy, and on all occasions had thrown out many violent reflections against him. Nothing could be of greater consequence to Buckingham than to keep Bristol at a distance both from the king and the parliament, lest the power of truth, enforced by so well-informed a speaker, should open scenes which were but suspected by the former and of which the latter had as yet entertained no manner of jealousy he applied therefore to james whose weakness disguised to himself under the appearance of finesse and dissimulation was now become absolutely incurable a warrant for sending bristol to the tower was issued immediately upon his arrival in england and though he was soon released from confinement yet orders were carried him from the king to retire to his country seat and to abstain from all attendance in Parliament. He obeyed, but loudly demanded an opportunity of justifying himself, and of laying his whole conduct before his master. On all occasions he protested his innocence, and threw on his enemy the blame of every miscarriage. Buckingham, and, at his instigation, the prince, declared that they would be reconciled to Bristol, if he would but acknowledge his errors and ill-conduct but the spirited nobleman jealous of his honour refused to buy favour at so high a price james had the equity to say that the insisting on that condition was a strain of unexampled tyranny but buckingham scrupled not to assert with his usual presumption that neither the king the prince nor himself 
were as yet satisfied of Bristol's innocence. While the attachment of the prince to Buckingham, while the timidity of James, or the shame of changing his favorite, kept the whole court in awe, the Spanish ambassador in Oyosa endeavored to open the king's eyes, and to cure his fears by instilling greater fears into him. He privately slipped into his hand a paper, and gave him a signal to read it alone. He there told him that he was as much a prisoner at London as ever Francis I was at Madrid, that the prince and Buckingham had conspired together, and had the whole court at their devotion, that cables among the popular leaders in Parliament were carrying on, to the extreme prejudice of his authority, that the project was to confine him to some of his hunting seats, and to commit the whole administration to Charles and that it was necessary for him, by one vigorous effort, to vindicate his authority, and to punish those who had so long and so much abused his friendship and beneficence. What credit James gave to this representation does not appear. He only discovered some faint symptoms, which he instantly retracted, of dissatisfaction with Buckingham. All his public measures, and all the alliances into which he entered, were founded on the system of enmity to the Austrian family, and of war to be carried on for the recovery of the Palatinate. The state of the United Provinces were at this time governed by Maurice, and that aspiring prince, sensible that his credit would languish during peace, had, on the expiration of the Twelve Years' Truce, renewed the war with the Spanish monarchy. His great capacity in the military art would have compensated the inferiority of his forces, had not the Spanish armies been commanded by Spinola, a general equally renowned for conduct, and more celebrated for enterprise and activity. In such a situation, nothing could be more welcome to the Republic than the prospect of a rupture between James and the Catholic King, and they flattered themselves, as well from the natural union of interests between them and England, as from the influence of the present conjuncture, that powerful succors would soon march to their relief. Accordingly, an army of six thousand men was levied in England, and sent over to Holland, commanded by four young noblemen, Essex, Oxford, Southampton, and Willoughby, who were ambitious of distinguishing themselves in so popular a cause and of acquiring military experience under so renowned a captain as Maurice. It might reasonably have been expected that, as religious zeal had made the recovery of the Palatinate appear a point of such vast importance in England, the same effect must have been produced in France, by the force merely of political views and considerations. While that principality remained in the hands of the House of Austria, the French dominions were surrounded on all sides by the possessions of that ambitious family, and might be invaded by superior forces from every quarter. It concerned the King of France, therefore, to prevent the peaceable establishment of the Emperor in his new conquests, and both by the situation and greater power of his state, he was much better enabled than James to give succor to the distressed Palatine. Notwithstanding the sensible experience which James might have acquired of this unsurmountable antipathy entertained by his subjects against an alliance with Catholics, he still persevered in the opinion that his son would be degraded by receiving into his bed a princess of less than royal extraction. After the rupture, therefore, with Spain, nothing remained but an alliance with France, and to that court he immediately applied himself. 
the same allurements had not here place which had so long entangled him in the spanish negotiation the portion promised was much inferior and the peaceable restoration of the palatine could not thence be expected but james was afraid lest his son should be altogether disappointed of a bride and therefore as soon as the french king demanded for the honour of his crown the same terms which had been granted to the spanish he was prevailed with to comply and as the prince during his abode in spain had given a verbal promise to allow the infanta the education of her children till the age of thirteen this article was here inserted into the treaty and to that imprudence is generally imputed the present distressed condition of his posterity the court of england however it must be confessed always pretended even in the memorials to the french court that all the favourable conditions granted to the catholics were inserted in the marriage treaty merely to please the pope and that their strict execution was by an agreement with france secretly dispensed with as much as the conclusion of the marriage treaty was acceptable to the king as much were all the military enterprises disagreeable both from the extreme difficulty of the undertaking in which he was engaged and from his own incapacity for such a scene of action during the spanish negotiation heidelberg and mannheim had been taken by the imperial forces and frankendale though the garrison was entirely english was closely besieged by them after reiterated remonstrances from james spain interposed and procured a suspension of arms during eighteen months but as frankendale was the only place of frederick's ancient dominions which was still in his hands ferdinand desirous of withdrawing his forces from the palatinate and of leaving that state in security was unwilling that so important a fortress should remain in the possession of the enemy to compromise all differences it was agreed to sequestrate it into the hands of the infanta as a neutral person upon condition that after the expiration of the truce it should be delivered to frederick though peace should not at that time be concluded between him and ferdinand after the unexpected rupture with spain the infanta when james demanded the execution of the treaty offered him peaceable possession of frankendale and even promised a safe conduct for the garrison to the spanish netherlands but there was some territory of the empire interposed between her state and the palatinate and for passage over that territory no terms were stipulated by this chicane which certainly had not been employed if amity with spain had been preserved the palatine was totally dispossessed of his patrimonial dominions the english nation however and james's warlike council were not discouraged it was still determined to reconquer the palatinate a state lying in the midst of germany possessed entirely by the emperor and duke of bavaria surrounded by potent enemies and cut off from all communication with england count mansfeld was taken into pay and an english army of twelve thousand foot and two hundred horse was levied by a general press throughout the kingdom during the negotiation with france vast promises had been made though in general terms by the french ministry not only that a free passage should be granted to the english troops but that powerful succors should also join them in their march towards the palatinate in england all these professions were hastily interpreted to be positive engagements the troops under manfeldt's command were embarked at dover but upon sailing over to clay 
found no orders yet arrived for their admission. After waiting in vain during some time, they were obliged to sail towards Zealand, where it had also been neglected to concert proper measures for their disembarkation, and some scruples arose among the states on account of the scarcity of provisions. Meanwhile, a pestilential distemper crept in among the English forces, so long cooped up in narrow vessels. Half the army died while on board, and the other half, weakened by sickness, appeared too small a body to march into the Palatinate. And thus ended this ill-concerted and fruitless expedition, the only disaster which happened to England during the prosperous and pacific reign of James. That reign was now drawing towards a conclusion. With peace so successfully cultivated, and so passionately loved by this monarch, his life also terminated. This spring he was seized with a tertian ague, and when encouraged by his courtiers with the common proverb that such a distemper during that season was health for a king, he replied that the proverb was meant of a young king. After some fits, he found himself extremely weakened, and sent for the prince, whom he extorted to bear a tender affection for his wife, but to preserve a constancy in religion. To protect the Church of England, and to extend his care toward the unhappy family of the Palatine. With decency and courage he prepared himself for his end, and he expired on the 27th of March, after a reign over England of twenty-two years and some days, and in the fifty-ninth year of his age. His reign over Scotland was almost of equal duration with his life. In all history, it would be difficult to find a reign less illustrious, yet more unspotted and unblemished, than that of James in both kingdoms. No prince, so little enterprising and so inoffensive, was ever so much exposed to the opposite extremes of calumny and flattery, of satire and panegyric, and the factions which began in his time, being still continued, have made his character be as much disputed to this day as is commonly that of princes who are our contemporaries. Many virtues, however, it must be owned, he was possessed of, but scarcely any of them pure or free from the contagion of the neighboring vices. His generosity bordered on profusion, his learning on pedantry, his pacific disposition on pusillanimity, his wisdom on cunning, his friendship on light fancy and boyish fondness. While he imagined that he was only maintaining his own authority, he may, perhaps, be suspected, in a few of his actions, and still more of his pretensions, to have somewhat encroached on the liberties of his people, while he endeavored, by an exact neutrality, to acquire the goodwill of all his neighbors, he was able to preserve fully the esteem and regard of none. His capacity was considerable but fitter to discourse on general maxims than to conduct any intricate business. His intentions were just, but more adapted to the conduct of private life than to the government of kingdoms. Awkward in his person and ungainly in his manners, he was ill-qualified to command respect. Partial and undiscerning in his affections, he was little fitted to acquire general love. Of a feeble temper more than of a frail judgment, exposed to our ridicule from his vanity, but exempt from our hatred by his freedom from pride and arrogance. And, upon the whole, it may be pronounced of his character, that
that all his qualities were sullied with weakness and embellished by humanity of political courage he certainly was destitute and thence chiefly is derived the strong prejudice which prevails against his personal bravery an inference however which must be owned from general experience to be extremely fallacious he was only once married to anne of denmark who died on the third of march sixteen nineteen in the forty-fifth year of her age a woman eminent neither for her vices nor her virtues she loved shows and expensive amusements but possessed little taste in her pleasures a great comet appeared about the time of her death and the vulgar esteemed it the prognostic of that event so considerable in their eyes are even the most insignificant princes he left only one son charles then in the twenty-fifth year of his age and one daughter elizabeth married to the elector palatine she was aged twenty-nine years those alone remained of six legitimate children born to him he never had any illegitimate and he never discovered any tendency even the smallest toward a passion for any mistress the archbishops of canterbury during this reign were whitgift who died in sixteen o four bancroft in sixteen ten abbot who survived the king the chancellors lord ellismore who resigned in sixteen seventeen Bacon was first Lord Keeper till 1619, then was created Chancellor, and was displaced in 1621. Williams, Bishop of Lincoln, was created Lord Keeper in his place. The High Treasurers were the Earl of Dorset, who died in 1609, the Earl of Salisbury in 1612, the Earl of Suffolk, fined and displaced for bribery in 1618. Lord Mandeville resigned in 1621 the earl of middlesex displaced in sixteen twenty four the earl of marlborough succeeded the lord admirals were the earl of nottingham who resigned in sixteen eighteen the earl afterward duke of buckingham the secretaries of state were the earl of salisbury sir ralph winwood nanton calvert lord conway sir albertus morton the number of the house of lords in the first parliament of this reign were seventy-eight temporal peers the numbers in the first parliament of charles were ninety-seven consequently james during that period created nineteen new peerages above those that expired the house of commons in the first parliament of this reign consisted of four hundred and sixty-seven members it appears that four boroughs revived their charters which they had formerly neglected and as the first parliament of charles consisted of four hundred and ninety-four members we may infer that james created ten new boroughs end of section sixty chapter forty nine part three